Hello, and welcome to the Church Newtown Square podcast. If we can serve you in any way, or if you'd like to learn more about our church family or the Acts 29 network, please visit us at churchnsq.org. That's C-H-V-R-C-H-N-S-Q dot org. And now, let's listen in to today's teaching. A few weeks ago, I was driving uh, on the way up to New York City for a gathering of some Acts 29 pastors. We were uh, gathering together to just celebrate what God has done in the the area. And um, uh, we were singing and um, worshiping together and hearing some words of encouragement and while I was driving up there, it was right around the time when uh, Pastor Tim Keller passed away and uh, went to be with Jesus. And, you know, uh, uh, whenever I'm driving, I try to listen to uh, podcasts or, you know, sermons that uh, I want to catch up on. And it, for no particular reason, this, this sermon popped up uh, that Tim gave at the, the Gospel Coalition Conference in 2013. And it was on Psalm 25, but he focused on the friendship with God. And he notes that the Psalms are where we learn uh, how to pray. The Lord's Prayer teaches us what to pray for. Jesus gives instruction of the various things that we can pray for. Uh, but the Psalms are, are how to pray. And in Psalm 25, 14, it says that the secret counsel, or that word their friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he reveals his covenant to them. And the point of Tim's sermon was that it is possible to have a friendship with God. Uh, God confides in us in his covenant. He reveals himself to us, but we too can have a friendship with him. And I would, I would guess that most of us would not describe our Christian experience as friendship with God. We, we typically put it in terms of I have a personal relationship with God, which is fairly generic. But to say that I have a friendship with God, that God is my friend, that, that is something a little bit more intimate little bit more deeper when we say that we have friends there's levels of friendship but when we say we're friends with God uh, that that conveys something a little bit different at least in my own heart I began to reflect on whether I would describe my uh, relationship with God as a relationship or a friendship and so as uh, I knew that we were entering into this season of the Psalms my my hope for us is that we would cultivate this summer a, a, a friendship with God And the way that you cultivate a friendship with God is primarily through prayer. It is praying, talking to God. But it's not just a one-way conversation. God's friendship with us is cultivated just like we cultivate friendships with one another. We hear from one another. God speaks to us and we speak back to him. And so friendship with God is, is very possible. And that is primarily done through talking to God and hearing from God through his word. So this morning, I want to introduce us, for those of you that are note-takers, here's what I want to do. I want to give you a brief introduction into the Psalms, uh, give you an overview. We're going to just study book one. The Psalms is broken into five different books, and I'll explain that a little bit more. But I want to give you a brief introduction, then we'll jump into Psalm 1, and we're going to ask three questions. What is the way to a happy life? What is the way to a happy life? What is the mark of a happy life? And what is the wicked man's greatest need? And then... I want to take us into how do we apply that? What are some next steps as we see what Psalm 1 has for us? First, let me give you an introduction to the Psalms. You, you may not have known that the Psalms are actually intentionally, they're intentionally ordered. Uh, if you're new to Christianity or maybe even if you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe perhaps you've assumed that Psalms was just kind of the middle of the book where they took a smattering of poems and put them in the middle. Uh, 
it is actually intentionally laid out. The book of Psalms is a collection of five books. And the way that they're ordered uh, was ordered in terms of reminding Israel uh, of the story of God in their particular life of Israel, the kingdom of Israel. It's used as a personal worship and corporate worship for Israel. And now for us, it's a prayer book and a hymn book. It's, it's prayers to God, and it's also psalms like the psalms of ascents way at the end. They were sung on the way up to worship. Jesus would have sung many of these psalms. His disciples would have sung. The Jews would have sung, uh, sing the psalms. Uh, the psalm book, the whole of the book, is, is mostly sad psalms. They're, they're filled with mostly sad psalms called lamentations. But the book of Psalms, while it opens up with these sad songs of lament, and we'll see why, they end with songs of glory. And so the, the dynamic movement in the book of Psalms is, is one where it moves Israel, moves us from recognizing that uh, we are called to a particular relationship with God. And, and the way in which we relate to God is mediated through the king of Israel. And then as we remember what happened with Israel, that they were exiled, the Psalms was collected at a time when they were trying to remember what it is that God had promised them. It was a, a way of reminding the corporate community of Israel what God had promised. And so book one is Psalms 1 through 41. Uh, you'll see this in your Bible. You could do this this afternoon. You could look through and see where you'll see book one, book two book three, book four, book five. In fact, you might be familiar with one of the psalms, even says, here ends the psalms of David. It is a marker between the psalms of David and uh, the brothers of Asaph, or the, the songs of Korah. There are footnotes in the psalms that let you know that these are collections uh, intentionally put together. Book one lays out basically the covenant that was made with David and his descendants. And what we see in book one is that the covenant is inaugurated and confirmed by God. Psalm one and two is which we'll see this week is Psalm one, next week is Psalm two. We're only going to take 11 psalms in the first book to give you an overview of the flavor of psalms. And then the rest of the time, you can study that on your own and spend some time there. But Psalm one and two, as we'll see, are used as an overview or a summary for the repeated theme or message, which is the intended purpose of the whole book of psalms. And in the repeated theme, you could write this down if you want, the repeated theme is that Israel's God, who is now our God, is king. God is king. And Israel's destiny is glory. It's not subjugation. It's not exile. That Israel was not intended to be permanently exiled. There's promises there that the covenant with God and his king is going to last, and it's going to be forever. And their king is coming. So that is the theme of the whole book of Psalms. Psalm 2 would have been a coronation psalm for David and his sons. It would have been sung, and it would have been the, 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 the coronation hymn for the king. When we get out of book one, book two, you'll see that if you read through the psalms, the covenant has been transferred from the king David to his son, the king Solomon. And Solomon, most of those psalms are a crying out for the caring of the needy and the afflicted. But by the time you get to the end of book three, there's kind of this dark cloud hanging over the entirety of the book circumstances are bleak there's a lot of lament there and the question is this it's it's posed lord where is your former great love where is the faithfulness that you swore to david which is why sometimes the psalms are a great place for us to camp out on because sometimes we feel like the faithfulness of god is not necessarily 
clear to us. We don't, we don't see God's faithfulness to us. We, we look at our circumstances and wonder, how is it that God is active in my life? But you're not alone. It's a human experience to wonder, where is God? Because God sometimes is, uh, though he is present, he is hard to see in terms of what he's doing in our life or, or even how we feel. God has given us feelings for a reason. It's, we're not supposed to ignore our feelings, but we can't let them rule us either. So by the time you get to the end of book three, the Psalms ask the question, essentially, how do we live in the absence of a messianic king? You made the promise in book one that there is a king, and and King David passes that kingship on to Solomon. And Solomon, in his faithfulness, serves the needy. But by the time you get to book three, God is absent. There's songs of lament. And then the answer to that question, how do we live in the absence of of the Messianic King are answered in books four and five, which begin to move towards songs of glory. You'll you'll notice that in books four through five, in the latter half of the book of Psalms, you'll start to see uh, psalms that are uh, filled with faith and with hope. And you could summarize books four and five with those two words, faith and hope. And so that is a very brief, basic introduction to psalms, that there is intentionality. It moves you from the promise of God to the life of Israel and the life of the church that the the king is in control and he is God and then eventually faith and hope will lead us to glory. And so the book of Psalms is very much an intentionally crafted book. Two things before we get into Psalm 1 is that we need to understand is that there is a lot of imagery in the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 104, 1 through 4 says, my soul bless the Lord my God. You are very great and you are clothed with majesty and splendor. Well, you can't clothe yourself in majesty and splendor. It's, it's imagery. It's this picture. Uh, the heavens declare your glory. Stars don't verbally speak. There's a declaration that we see. And there's lots of imagery. And the imagery is used to touch our emotions. If you let it fill your mind and think about the ways in which you can make the connections to everyday concrete examples of things that we see in everyday life, the Psalms are a great way to help us to see the promises or to understand or feel it. John Calvin referred to the book of Psalms as an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. When we go through the Psalms, we can see uh, emotion being poured out by David or Asaph or whoever the psalmist was. Everything that we feel as human beings can be articulated or seen in one psalm or the other, which is very encouraging because God is not just a dry God. He is an emotional God. He has emotions. He has created us to have emotions, and our emotions reflect something. And so when we read the Psalms, as we spend some time, and let me encourage you to just recognize that the Psalms, when you're in it, it involves a lot of reflection. It involves a lot of thinking and meditation and a lot of waiting for things to kind of like sink in, for you to like spend some time in a particular Psalm and just meditate on it and think about it and wait and watch and see how God responds to you. So uh, imagery and intentionality are in the Psalms, and the Psalms are ordered in a way that leads us to a friendship with God. So Psalm 1. Let's go to Psalm 1. There are three things I want you to see here. What is the way to a happy life? What is the mark of a happy life? And what does the wicked man need? Let's read Psalm 1 as we jump in. Psalm 1. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, 
or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction. And on that Lord's instruction, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose life does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners will stand in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Psalm 1 and 2, you'll notice if you look in your Bible, you'll notice that there is no uh, mention of an author. If you look at, ver- look at Psalm 3, who wrote Psalm 3? Let's just look, it's just right there, 1, 2, 3, who wrote Psalm 3? If you don't have your Bible, you won't know this, but if you have your Bible, you can open it up and you can see that I'm not lying. What, what do you see? Who wrote Psalm 3? David. Who wrote Psalms 1 and 2? Nobody knows. It's anonymous. No one knows. The collector of the Psalms, whoever put it together, intentionally put it anonymously, did not mention the authorship because it's intended to give direction at the front of the book of what the whole book of Psalms is all about. Psalm 1-1 and Psalm 2-12, they are basically bookends. It includes one understanding. That one, there is a way in which God instructs the righteous king to be, which is to know the law of the Lord. Two, the righteous king is God's king. God is king, and he has anointed his king. We'll talk about that in Psalm 2 next week. Psalm 1 gives us the purpose, which can be summarized in one word. The entire purpose of the book of Psalms, all five books, is this, instruction. Instruction, or word. Whose word? Whose instruction? God's instruction. God's instruction. Psalm 2 gives us an overview of the entirety of the central theme of God. So God's word gives us instruction for how to live. Psalm 2 tells us that the central message or the theme is that our God is king. Our king's instruction, the Lord's instruction, is the way in which we will go. Psalm 55, 19 says, God, the one enthroned from long ago, will hear. God is king. And so when we get to Psalm number one, we ask the question first, it's pretty evident, what is the way to a happy life? It is impossible to go in two directions at once. Sometimes we feel like we're pulled in multiple directions. Have you ever heard somebody say, I feel like I'm being pulled in multiple directions? But the reality is you cannot go east and west at the same time. You must go either east or you must, wait, east or west. And some will tell you this is the way that you should go. But in Psalm 1, the psalmist, God speaking through the psalmist, tells us plainly where the way two very different directions will take us. It's like flagger force. You know, flagger force, do you know who flagger force is? When you come upon, uh, it's not 95. They did not trust 95 to flagger force. But if you have like a road that's being constructed on, you see flagger force there in their sweltering hot. Those poor, those poor people have to wear full hazmat uniforms for like setting up cones and and there's like signs, and they're waving you along, you're trusting that they're going to lead you into the path of safety so that you won't get hit with something large on the construction area. In the same way, this direction that is being set, what is the way to a happy life, 
the psalmist is leading us towards a safe or happy way of living. Because each of us essentially has to choose which direction we will go. We all choose which direction we will go. I have, um, I have a love for hiking, and uh, recently uh, I went out west and was in um, Moab, uh, Utah. And one of the things that we saw was called Druid Arch. And out, out west, or even any hiking trail, if you're familiar with hiking, there are either cairns or trailblazers. A trailblazer is like a mark on a tree or a mark on, a, on the ground. And when you see a single mark, you know that you are following the trees or the path. And then if there's a double blaze, you know that it's turning, and then you look for the other single blazes. In the same way, in the back country of Moab, they don't paint the rocks. They use cairns. You know, there's, there's, there are rocks that are built in piles. Has anybody seen these rocks? You, if you've gone to a, 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 a mountain and you've seen these piles of rocks, uh, you might be tempted to kick them down. But don't kick them down because it actually is leading people into beauty and then leading them back to their car so that they're safe. Trailblazers and cairns lead hikers into beauty. They lead them to what they want to see, and then they lead them back home. If you were to take those blazers off or you were to kick those cairns away, you would actually be putting other people in danger because eventually they would lose their way. In the same way, the psalmist wants us to understand that this psalm is essentially, for lack of, you know, for, for, to, to connect the metaphor, it is a trailhead. It's the entranceway. It's the doorway into the book of Psalms so that you have something to guide your head and your heart to know, how do I live a life that is blessed? Some of your translations say, how blessed is the one, or blessed is the man, blessed is the person, happy is the one who does what? How happy. Look, that word, that word happy there, or blessed, is the, is the word that is translated asherah, which begins with aleph. It's the beginning or the equivalent of what our A is. It is how blessed. Blessed, or that word happy, is heard 26 times in the Psalter. And, and you might remember, like, what Jesus entered, uh, what he began his Sermon on the Mount, what blessed is the man. Well, that word happy, that happiness, is the word that explains a well-being in every area of life. To be happy isn't just an emotional uh, sense of like I'm so happy, and you know the the most gregarious, outgoing of us. One of the one of the one of the things that is a struggle for me is if I'm tired. You're so used to me being like, "Hey, everybody, what's up? Let me give you a hug." You know, if I'm kind of not like that way, you will respond like, "Dude, what's wrong?" And I will say, "I, I don't know. I'm just not. I'm not. I'm tired. I, whatever." You can see it on my face. It's that extreme. But this word is not that. This word is a well-being in all of life. The happiness is a, a, a reflection of, of the opposite of what we see in the last verse. Look at verse 6. We'll get there. But the verse 6 says, the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Another word there might be in your translation, perish. Perish. That word there is the exact opposite of the word that is here blessed. In fact... It is started, perish starts with the Hebrew word tav, which is the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which is the end of the line. And so this is intentionally, the, the word used here is you want to go to the opposite extremes of being blessed or perishing, flourishing or perishing or dying. And so here what the psalmist says is how blessed or how happy is the one who happiness 
happiness. The way to happiness is now going to be revealed. What are the ways to happiness? What is the trajectory of your life? Where is the context that you find yourself? Let's read on. How happy blessed is the one who does not walk, in other words, who does not live out their daily life in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, their delight is in the Lord's instruction. That is the law, Torah. And he meditates. He speaks aloud to oneself. He, he chews on it day and night. He or she chews on it. Now, I want to be very clear. The reason why it says how happy is the man primarily is because it is connected to Psalm number 2. But it can be applied. Psalm number 2 is about the king. So in other words, the psalmist is saying how happy is the man who lives in the words of the Lord. And the king is the one we want to live in the words of the Lord. So the righteous king who was the man of God, who was David, who would be the man of God, Jesus. That's why it says, happy is the man. However, it is not uh, wrong for us to apply this to men or women. This is simply just an expression of what is the direction that anyone could take, but especially the king. You want the king to be righteous. So the realms of thinking, you'll see there, there is what? The pathway of the sinner. The, the sitting in the company of mockers or walking in the advice of the wicked. This is uh, pointing to the realms of your thinking and your behaving and your belonging. What do you think about most? And what is it that drives your thinking? Whose advice are you taking? Where do you find yourself uh, spending most of your time? Who do you hang out with? What do you do when you hang out with those people? And, and, and when, it, when you think about belonging, do you enjoy belonging to a particular group of of individuals or a particular organization more than you enjoy another? It is a sense of where do you find your identity? Where do you find your action being influenced by? And this word blessed, how happy, is talking about happiness. This fullness, this well-being is in contrast to what those who are wicked are like. The wicked, the opposite of the, those who are happy, are not like the one who is listening to the law of the Lord. They're listening to the, the, the words of their own ideas, their own advice. Psalm 119.9 says, How does a young man keep his way pure? By keeping your word. John 1.14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Matthew 5.13 says, Jesus came, who was the word, and began to teach, saying, Blessed and happy are the poor in spirit. The psalmist says that the one who wants to have a fullness of life, a well-being in life, in finances, in uh, relationships, in all of the ways of the heart, if you want a fullness of life, not a perfect life, but if you want a satisfied, content life, then the one who is happy is not one who walks in the advice of the wicked, nor stand in the pathway of sinners, nor sit in a company of mockers. They listen to the word of the Lord. And so the psalmist sets before us the outcome of the one who meditates on or follows the pathway of God's instruction. What is the mark of a happy life? Number two, it's, it is well-being in every area. How does the imagery uh, come across to us? Let's, let's look at verse three. He is like, or that person is like, a tree planted besides flowing streams, living water. It, they are intentionally placed. Uh, I have a a hydrangea bush that utterly died in the front. There was, we set out six 
bushes in the front of our yard, and one of those bushes was dead. If you're familiar with hydrangea bushes, they have like green leaves and flowery uh, flowers. Can I use that? And one of them was brown. It was dead. And you just plucked off the, uh, uh, the stems, and it just completely was like a stalk. It was like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree. Do you familiar with that? It just like, looks like the dead tree, just with one single stalk. Well, it had one little bud, and so I, I took it out, and I thought, maybe this thing has, maybe there's hope. So I took it, and I intentionally planted it in a corner of our house where it wouldn't get as much sun. I put it in fertile soil, and I watered it, and that thing is blooming now. It is starting to grow. There's life. In the same way, this word planted here is an intentional planting. He is like a tree that is intentionally planted besides life, flowing streams, which I believe is God's spirit. The, the, the flow of water in the scriptures is always the spirit of God. It's imagery for the spirit of God. And what does being planted by the spirit of God, what does being planted by uh, the word do in us? Well, it says that we bear fruit in its season, that there's always a fruitfulness there. Our, our leaf does not wither. Uh, whatever we do, it prospers. That word prosperity there is not just financial prosperity by any stretch of the imagination. It is what you do is fruitful. It is helpful. It is contributing to what God has intended us to contribute to, which is the welfare of all of creation for one another, for our creation. There is a, a fullness there. In fact, you might even be thinking about, perhaps if you know, the Hebrew word shalom, this wholeness of peace. In every aspect, your life is not perfect, but you are prospering. You're prospering. The mark of a happy life is one in which Jesus says your life will be like a house that is built on the right foundation. When storms come, when waves crash against that, if it's built on the right foundation, if it's planted well, if it's being nourished by the word of God, it will stand the test of time. But there's another way to live. This picture of the happy person, the person that is content, who, who chooses to live in the, the Lord's instruction, the mark of a happy life is one in which they are listening to God's word. They are delighting in there. And that word delight there, if we delight in something, it's not just something that we like for a little bit. When, when we delight in spending time with those that we love, it's not just, we, we enjoy it. We don't want that time to end. We have a, a sense of, I mean, I really enjoy this time. It's, it, it is a, it's a deepness of enjoyment. We delight. And sometimes I wonder, let me ask this question and just throw it out there. Again, this is the Psalms give some time and space for us to truly be honest with ourselves. It invites reflection. Is, is if you were to spend a few minutes and think this, this to yourself, say, do I delight in the Lord? What would your answer it shouldn't be a quick one. It'd be like, sit and think on that. The one who delights, what does it mean? What does it feel like to delight in the Lord's instruction? Because sometimes the Lord's instruction doesn't feel delightful. It causes us to give things up that we don't want to give up. It causes us to, to make decisions if we believe that that instruction is right and good. We make decisions that are painful, but yet there's a deeper sense of delight. What does it feel like to do the right thing according to God's word? How do we feel when we make that decision? And though there's a little bit of pain, 
maybe in our wallet, or maybe, maybe a little bit of pain in that relationship because I'm choosing to, to avoid what I know is, is wrong. That pain is overwhelmed by a sense of I've done what is right and I delight in the Lord's instruction. What is it to delight? Well, in order to kind of see what that delight is in, the psalmist gives us a, an opposite picture. He tells us what is the picture of the other path. So if there's two ways to live, if there's one way to live, which in fact your title might be the two ways, right? It says the two ways. The other way to live is in a way that were wicked, the wicked, the ones who are godless, the ones, the wicked were counted in, in Israel as the ones who were without Yahweh. They were not uh, worshipers of God. You might be familiar with Stevie Nicks and Fleetwood Mac. You can go your own way. Is that right? You can go your own way. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that little audience participation. What is the result of that life when you go your own way? Look at verse 4. The wicked are not like this. They are like chaff, chaff that the wind blows away. Now, this is where the Psalms, you got to kind of like, you know, take some ancient imagery and translate it into modern imagery. Uh, if any of you are coffee connoisseurs, you know that if when you roast coffee beans, my wife and I had like, a, we borrowed a little roaster a few years ago when we used to roast our own coffee beans. Coffee beans are green, then you roast them, and they pop. They, 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 when they get hot enough, they pop, and they create this shell that is this clear little brown shell, and then it, it blows away. I used to roast it on the side porch, and I used to have, like, piles of this chaff, essentially, this shell that it sh the coffee bean pops, it roasts, it, sh it sheds it, and it, it blows away. Wheat chaff was the same thing. You would rub the head of a wheat grain, and it would have this skin on top of it, and you would throw it up in the air, and it would be sifted, and it would catch on the sifter, and then the light uh, chaff would blow away, and that's how they would get rid of it. It is this sense of substance, a lack of substance. There's, there's no weight to it. There's, there, the, 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 life, the life of the wicked have no lasting substance, and it may feel, or you may think that all of the things that I'm choosing to do, I'm, I'm not listening to the Lord's instruction, but the wicked say, I'm going to walk in my own advice. I'm going to, I'm going to choose the things that I want uh, to do because I believe that they're best. For a moment or for a very long time, it may feel as if you are benefiting from that lifestyle, but the, the word of God says that, no, you're actually, your life lacks any substance because in the end, it will just disappear. It will, it will blow away. The way of the wicked has no value. There is no lasting benefit. They are not like a tree that grows and it flourishes and it bears fruit in season and you want to keep that tree and you want to pick the fruit. No, the, the wicked are, their lifestyle is substanceless. And in the end, the, the, the psalmist points to, verse 5, the, the judgment. The judgment. What, what judgment is this? The, therefore, the wicked... The ungodly, the one who does not listen to the Lord's instruction, the word of God, the wicked will not stand. They will not be secure. They will not be with people who have listened to the Lord's instruction in the judgment, in the judgment. 
nor will the sinners sit in the assembly of the righteous. It is the same, the gathering of the righteous. When we think about that, we think of Revelation chapter 20, where John says that I saw a great white throne. And, and, and it's spoken of throughout the, the scriptures. It points to that day, that day of judgment, where God will come down and he will reveal and open up all of creation to his splendor and glory, and then he will call every single man, woman, and child to account for the way in which they responded to his instruction. And it says that the wicked will not stand in that day. I saw a great white throne, John says, and earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I also saw that the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books, plural, were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. You could also translate the wicked were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Books and books and books and books and books and books and books will be opened. Basically, that is an imagery of the account of your life. Every single action, every single word, every single deed, everything, every single intention will be accounted for. But the righteous will have their name only in one book, which would be the book of life, the book of flourishing, the book that lists your name and says, you are mine. The beginning of the Psalms is a, is a constant reminder to us, which leads us to number three. What is, the, what is the wicked man's greatest need? What does the wicked man need? If the bar of a fruitful life, a happy life, is listening to the instructions of the Lord, and your life will prosper in listening to the Lord's instructions, then the righteous is uh, the, the bar. The righteousness of God is the bar. And if it promises us that the wicked are not like this, we, we, if you do not delight in the Lord's instruction, if you're not meditating on it day and night, then you are the opposite. There's only two ways. You cannot go in two ways. You cannot say you delight in one thing and act in, in a different way. It's just impossible. You can't, there's a tension there. So by the time that we get to verse 6, what does it say? For the Lord watches over the righteous. The Lord watches over the righteous. But the way of the wicked leads to ruin, or the wicked perish. There's a metaphor that says, what the fool does in the end, the wise man does in the beginning. What the fool does in the end, the wise man does in the beginning. And what the psalmist is trying to say here is that in the end of your life, you will have either one or two outcomes. The first outcome could be prosperity, flourishing, a fullness, a well-being. The second could be a lack of any life, no substance, nothing to point to that has any worth or value. And when we're at the front end of our life, when we're young men and young women, when we're between the ages of 17 or 22, we begin to make decisions about where we're going to go in life. And the greatest decisions uh, of our lives are usually made within those first few years. Think back to when you were 17 or 22 or 25, and you think about the decisions that you made then, and I'm I would guarantee that almost always, you're, whether you're 40 or 50 or 60, you look back and say, my life is significantly impacted by the decision I made way back then. And what the psalmist is saying is that start with the end in mind. 
the sooner you can listen to the Lord's instruction. Life will not be perfect, and you will not always make the right decision, but when the Lord's instruction guides your path, the beautiful thing about the gospel is that the Lord watches over the righteous. But the, the, the Romans says there is none. The psalmist even says, Psalm says, there is no one who is righteous. There is no one who do, does good. So how is it possible that we can have well-being if no one is righteous and no one does good? Well, the answer is that, there, that the Lord, what does the wicked man need? What does the wicked person need? We need the Lord's intervention. We need the Lord's mercy. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. And immediately my mind turns to Jesus. I think about who is righteous, who is perfect, who is the one in which was the king. And we'll see this uh, in, in Psalm number two. But the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. And when we are in Christ Jesus, the most valuable thing to take away here is that when we are in Christ Jesus, who is the righteous king, who is the word of God, he is the word. When we listen to him, when we look to him, we have mercy. It is promised that we have mercy. That the, our, our greatest well-being, the greatest need that the wicked person has, the greatest need that Tom Hadzina or you or anyone else who stands before God and knows that they, are, they fall way short, how can they be guaranteed of their well-being? Well, they can delight in the Lord's instruction, or they can delight in the Word, or you can delight in Jesus. When we delight in Jesus, when we choose to live a life that is according to the way in which Jesus calls us to, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you well-being. You will be like a house built on the right foundation. Blessed is the poor in spirit, for they will be filled. Blessed are the ones who mourn, for they will rejoice. Happy is the person who listens to my word and applies them and rests in the grace of Jesus Christ. What keeps us from this life of prosperity or flourishing or well-being? Quite honestly, it's our fear of people. We're afraid of what other people will think of us. We're fearful about what people close to us, and we begin to follow this way of instruction, what they'll think of us, they'll mock us, they'll scoff at us. It is even our own unbelief, not believing that God has truly revealed to us a way in which will lead us towards well-being. And so some of the next steps that I want to invite you to is just an invitation to self-reflection. I can email this out to you all, but some things that we could ask ourselves when we read this psalm is like, to ask yourself, am I happy in the life that I've chosen to live? Am I, is there well-being in every area of my life? Am I fearful or am I confident about the future? Do I, do I delight in the Lord's instruction or do I not? Like, what evidence of righteousness will I have if I stand before God at judgment? That's just, what, what evidence will I have? Do others benefit from my life? Do I have a life that is filled with fruitfulness to those around me? Or, or do I just consume life? Is that, what marks my life? What would other people, maybe perhaps you might just have an honest conversation with some friends, some close family, and say, hey, if, just lovingly and kindly, what, what do you see as evidence in my life that I, do, do I delight in the Lord? Do you think that I delight in the Lord? And maybe see what others see. The sermon you've just listened to is a presentation of Church Newtown Square. To find out more about our church, 
check out churchnsq.org. That's C-H-V-R-C-H-N-S-Q.org. You are welcome to copy and distribute this sermon to others as long as you do not do it for commercial purposes or alter, transform, or build upon this talk in any way.